Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest specializes in analyzing the power of emotions to shape outcomes and personalities. He pioneered the use of facial coding in business and has done research for over 50% of the world's top 100 business-to-consumer companies. He has appeared on ABC's Good Morning America and NBC's The Today Show and was profiled in The New York Times. His podcast and blog are Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight can be found at emotionswizard.com. Working on his ninth book titled The Devil's Dictionary of Work, Life, and Commerce, please welcome today's guest, Dan Hill. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing great. Happy to be here, Gary. So, Dan, I got to ask you, how did you get started in this whole emotions EQ? Yeah, no, it's something of a cosmic joke because I'm Norwegian-American, and there's the Garrison Keillor joke about the Norwegian-American man who loved his wife so dearly, he very nearly told her so. (laughs) I got to admit, that's pretty good. Yeah. So I, I would say in some sense, it started because my family moved to Italy when I was six years old. My dad worked for the 3M company. I did not know the language at first. I went to an Italian first grade in a fishing village, and I had the whole day to like figure out what in the world is going on around here because I didn't have the use of language. So I wow. tried to read body language, which, of course, Italians have a lot of. I tried to figure out who was the teacher's pets. Yeah, what's the whole dynamic that I've stepped into here? So that's the personal dimension. The professional one is that I read an article in a now-deceased Cornell University publication talking about the breakthroughs in brain science and how much we are intuitive, emotional decision makers. And that led me to the statistic that the conservative estimation is that at least 95% of our mental activity is not fully conscious. Once you read a statistic like that, the whole world changes. And I just couldn't couldn't resist going there. Let's back up for a second to that six-year-old, because there's not a lot of six-year-olds that would be present enough to actually be able to read all the body language and, and what was going on with the teacher's pet and so on. So there's obviously some natural awareness there, but also a little bit out of survival. You didn't really have anything else to go on, did you? No, I did not. And I did have a father with a bit of a temper. So if you ask me why we'd be paying attention to body language, it's because my father would do certain things like if his hum changed, You know, some hums where he was just enjoying himself and some hums were like uh, troubles about to ensue. Mm -hmm. So I I think that's probably where some of that started. But yes, if you step into an environment where you you don't know anybody, you don't know the language, you don't know the customs, you're raised as a Lutheran, but every Saturday morning you're going to mass. I mean, every everything has changed for you suddenly. And yes, you can pay attention or you can be roadkill. Yeah. So part of it, like you said, roadkill, you was out of survival and you had enough intelligence to figure all this out at a very young age, which is fascinating because not everybody does. So how did that, you read this article, but how did that get you really the fascination, obviously, of 95% of what we do is unconscious. And I, I think that, I think that number is understated. I think it's more like 99%, but I, you know, 
Yeah, on the New York Times on the front page science section a couple of years ago, they said about 98%. So you're 99. Uh, you're 99 is awfully close. Okay. So, but what took you down that path professionally? How did you really dig into this and become such an expert? Well, the reason I read that piece from the uh, Cornell publication is I was trying to ghostwrite a book for a consulting firm's president. And he was a wonderful man in a lot of ways. So we were looking at the customer experience, but we really weren't getting inside the customer experience. We were just making assumptions about how they felt. We didn't actually know how they felt. So, you know, I, I like to do things well. My father was at 3M, which is, you know, devoted to innovation. That's its byline. He was a quality guru at one point in his career there. So I was really raised on doing something new, doing it well. And so I took that initial article and I started reading and reading and reading, looking for a tool that inobtrusively would allow me to capture engage and quantify people's emotional responses. And that brought me, after several months, that brought me to facial coding. So part of what I heard you say is you wanted to know what people felt. Yes. When they were in the middle of making a buying decision, is that like by reading their facial expressions, their body language, their tone of voice? In other words, as as we know, 93% of all uh, face-to-face messages are the nonverbals, right? So we're reading all those nonverbals. And you were able to codify that in a way to predict people's buying decisions? Yeah, because you know, vocal stuff is interesting, but it's not as precise as facial expressions allow for. They sure. can't distinguish between emotions as well. And I'm not carrying around the kind of equipment that in the moment in a store setting or, you know, watching an employee and a manager interact or any such thing to really work with that. But, you know, I I can carry my two eyeballs around. And if I have a methodology and a way to capture and track these, and the good news for me is although it really started with Leonardo da Vinci, who was the world's Mm. first great facial coder, it's why the Mona Lisa is so good because he was dissecting the the face and looking at the muscles and how they moved. You can pick all that up in his notebook. The person who really began to codify this was first Charles Darwin and then a man named Paul Ekman. And so there is a system. There are 23 different expressions which go to seven emotions. And I liked having a system because we both know that unfortunately in business there's sometimes this supposition that emotions are soft. And I would argue that emotions are about as soft as ka-ching, because emotions drive how we're going to behave, the decisions we make, how satisfied we are, all of that. But I was looking for a way in, and facial coding was that way in. Yeah, and in fact, I've heard of Paul Ekman and some of the research that I've done on emotional intelligence and the facial expressions and so on. He was actually the guy that was behind the research and the television program Lie to Me yeah. and talking about all those facial expressions and micro facial expressions, right? So, I, yeah, I've heard of this, and he's got a website out there, actually, about some of the emotions. It's, it's fascinating. I'll try to remember to put that in the uh, information on the podcast. But So the question I have for you is, what do you look for? What did you look for in your research, and how did you figure out what to look for in consumers making a buying decision? So you were looking at it with your eye, and you started to see some qualitative uh, consistencies and trends. So if I'm watching for something like that, I'm in a, a store and I'm looking at a consumer, how would I know that they're probably going to buy something? Well, the first thing is they have to be emotionally engaged. Emotion and motivation have the same root word in Latin, to move, to make something happen, like the cash register is filling in. So the first thing is, you know, it can't be just that they're sniffling or got some odd twitch. It's got to be a facial muscle movement that actually corresponds to emotion. But you got to have that. Otherwise, you've basically got a car sitting in the driveway with no gas in the tank. 
So you mm-hmm. got to get the car moving. That's the first thing. Then you got to move to each of these specific emotions because they have different meanings and different contexts. But I'll, I'll start off with a really easy one, happiness versus contempt. So yeah. happiness, you know, obviously we know the corners of the mouth go up, but you can also get a twinkle in the eye. That's joy. Mm-hmm. That's the highest level of happiness. So that's great because happiness as an emotion is I'm stepping towards you. I'm approaching. I'm embracing the branded offer, the person, the situation, whatever that may be. Now, the interesting thing is there's another emotion that's really simple, similar to happiness, but it's not at all like happiness. And that's contempt. The corner of the Mm -hmm. mouth goes up, but it also goes out. It has a kind of a tension to it. You're doing it right now as we're having this conversation. (laughs) And it is, you know, Snidely Whiplash. The character Snidely Whiplash is the embodiment of contempt. It's rejection. It's a lack of trust. And if trust is the emotion of business, contempt means the sale probably isn't going to go forward. Although there's a caveat. And that is if you have happiness and contempt, it may be that the person feels confident based on the buying decision being a good one for them. So there is that caveat, but contempt by itself, almost always bad news. Right, right. I think the point that you're making, though, about these two is people sometimes think that it's one or the other. There's one emotion there, but yet we all know, anybody that's aware about their emotional intelligence, that self-awareness knows that you can have five, six, seven, eight emotions at one time, all kind of bundled together, right? And those emotions can come out in a lot of different ways in our facial expressions. Yeah. Anger, for instance, has nine different ways we can show anger in the face. It ranges from I'm confused to I'm outraged. And to your point, where does that fall in the sequence? Do they maybe show some happiness? Uh, is it after the anger? So they were confused, but now they aren't. That's great. Then you're making progress, but they start out with happiness and get really outraged. Then you're taking a nosedive. That's not so good. Yeah. So in leadership, I mean, this obviously leadership, I talk about emotional intelligence and cognitive judgment are the only two scientifically correlated characteristics of leadership effectiveness. And when we talk about emotional intelligence in this reading of of emotions and facial expressions that you do, it's a really, really, really important part of of leadership and relationship building when I'm having a face to face conversation. So what what recommendations do you have for people to get better at this? How can we learn to be more uh, cognizant of some of the key emotions and uh, beyond just the, the five or six or seven universal emotions? Because most people can see joy, can see happiness, can see anger, can see contempt or disgust. But what about some of the other more complex facial expressions? And what what would you recommend for leaders? Well, I'm glad you brought up leadership because that is indeed emotional. You got to bring people with you. And too often leaders are in those positions in the corner suites because they were good at finance, maybe engineering, you know, something else, but it was rarely people skills. Legal. Yeah, legal very often, but it's rarely, unless they come from a sales angle, it's very rarely that they got the people skills. So I think that their tendency is to go with the words and to go with the numbers. And nothing against numbers. One of the reasons I wanted facial coding was that I could have some metrics to apply to emotions. But the world is not made up exclusively of spreadsheets. And mm-hmm. so I think you've got to first value emotions, realize that they provide you information, just happens to be in a different kind of way. And then, yes, you've got seven emotions, core emotions based on facial coding. But it's amazing how often people don't even get those right. 
that they don't understand what they're about. But then it's what kind of flavor do I have of that emotion? What other emotions are coming with it? So we can delve into that. But I would say a lot of executives, most executives, remain Mayo executives. And the one emotion guys are most comfortable with tends to be anger. And anger can be productive. It can it can say, I'm, I want to be in control of my destiny, and I want to drive toward an outcome. So that's good. But anger can also lead to rants. You can light the fuse, and then you can't you know, douse the fuse. It can you know make people back away from you because you are approaching them with a sense of menace, or that's how they take it mm-hmm. at least. So you're not rallying people. So I, I think that leaders have to open their eyes a whole lot more than they do right now. I think they just run with the words. And I know because my father was an executive at 3M, the higher you go up in the food chain, he always told me, the more the information was filtered that got to you. Because people did not want to tell you the truth for fear of getting the messenger who got shot. So you really needed to get a, a better ground truth of what's going on. I'm going to expand our thinking here for a second. I know you're the expert, but I'm going to double your comment. I'm going to double down on this because I always say in emotional intelligence that men have two feelings. They're happy and they're pissed. So (laughs) the happy part comes into consideration. And those are the two that men tend to focus on. And there's a third one, actually, but it's a non-emotion. It's no emotion. It's just yeah. neutrality, right? Stoical, yeah, the, the brick wall. Stoic, that's right. Yes, yeah, showing no more or not feeling any emotion. I mean, it's just not not there. And the fact is, is that we are complex beings. And just because our vocabulary, and I talk about this a lot with leaders, that our emotional vocabulary is lacking, that we don't even know, like you were saying, the seven primary universal emotions, never mind the descriptions of the, all the different types of anger, all the different types of happiness or sad or joy, whatever those might be. And we do a lot with people to expand the vocabulary. Where would you recommend people go to get a better vocabulary or expand on their ability to be able to read emotions or to expand the vocabulary? How, how do, would you recommend people do that? Well, I'm going to be self-serving here because I do have a book called Famous Faces Decoded, a guidebook ah. for reading others. And what I did is I took the seven emotions, but I took celebrity examples. So you can read the book on at least three different levels. One is you've got celebrity stories and you can look at their motivations and their, their kind of their narrative stories. And you probably don't know as much about these celebrities as you imagine. Hmm. Then you can go to a second level, which is really about emotional intelligence, because I do indeed want to take each of these emotions and look at the permutations of those emotions. Mm -hmm. And then the third and deepest level is what are the expressions that go with those emotions? So that's three different things. There's also a nice book called The Tell, which applies this into a lot of realms by Matt Herdenstein. And uh, he endorsed my book and, and his is a nice book as well. And it goes into some of the other areas that I've also enjoyed applying this to. It's certainly for business, but I've also applied it to sports, hence that front page article in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. I've applied it often as a commentator on presidential leadership. Uh, so there's lots of ways. There, there's your relationships, your personal relationships, your marriage and dating. So, yes, expanding the vocabulary. I, I totally agree with you. About 70% of our emoting tends to be around happiness and anger. But there's another 30 percent. And, you know, no one got to the C-suite by, you know, acing 70 percent of the test. (laughs) They need to be able to expand and have a little better sense of what's going on. Yeah. From a connection standpoint, we connect on an emotional level, not on a logical level as human beings. We, we yeah. have deep connections emotionally, right? So being able to express myself as a leader, 
about an emotion that I might see in you, even if I'm not exactly right, if I'm approximately right, it demonstrates that I'm trying to understand you. And there's some real value in that. So expanding my vocabulary to do that so that I can get close to what you're feeling at a given time and be able to express that to you can build on connection and can really expand a person's leadership capabilities. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Let me just take one other, a couple other emotions we haven't brought up so far. One is surprise and another one is fear. They happen to show really similarly on the face. Uh, the jaw drops down, the eyes go wide. And think about it. One of the things that executives are always trying to have happen is to get the employees to embrace change, to say, yeah, we have to innovate. We have to move on to new things. But the fact of the matter is change requires effort and it scares people. And when mm -hmm. people get scared, uh, you know, they can freeze and not make the movement that the executives are looking for. So I don't know how in this day and age you could be a good executive if you don't pick up, you know, surprise and fear. And the one fundamental difference between them in terms of how they get expressed is the mouth pulls wide in an EGADS expression when mm. you're afraid. It mm. does not do that for surprise, but it does it for fear. And any executive worth their salt should be able to pick up that expression in a employee town hall meeting you know, in answering questions and knowing what's going on at the ground level. What I'm hearing you say is it's really important for people to spend some time to understand what, rather than just through experience, think you know what someone might be feeling or thinking about, but to spend some time understanding the science behind this and what, as you describe some of these, I wish, you know, people could see on the, on the podcast, as you're talking, I'm making these facial expressions because I'm, I'm thinking in my head what you're saying. And all of a sudden I, you know, I get afraid or I get surprised or I get, and uh, I can make a facial expression that matches it, which is consistent with the principle that we talk about all the time as leaders is to listen with your eyes, not just your ears, but listen with your eyes. Yeah. And there's a couple of really important things here. One is we don't think our feelings, we feel them. So don't get overly cognitive about them. Uh, another thing that's really important is emotions are contagious. If you announce a, you know, a merger and acquisition or a reorg, people know, no matter what you say, people know some jobs are going to go overboard. So they start stressing out, you know, cortisol levels go up, pe people change. And the third thing is if you're making a change, people are nervous, they're alert, and you have to recognize that we dance the music, not to the words. Mm -hmm. They are looking for leaders who are empathetic, who get what they're going through, who understand that they're in pain and doubt and uncertainty. And you have to give them a reason to root for you and to swim with you against the tide to make the change. And I think leaders just think, I'm going to put out the three bullet points. I'm going to have a message. I'm going to go back to the corner suite and I'm going to go to lunch and I, I'm taking care of this part of things. Yeah. So the empathy says that they would be able to stand in front of people and express to them maybe the excitement of this change and try to help that become a contagious emotion with others. And if there's concern to face it and tell people you might be concerned about some of this. And let me, let me talk to you a little bit about what that might be and, and just recognize it, not judge it, but to recognize the emotion, like you were saying, don't try to think it through, but just feel it. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, so one that's really important in this situation would be sadness. I mean, you can feel sadness because you feel a sense of helplessness. You can feel sadness because you have a sense of isolation. 
these are really important, you know, signals to pick up as to what's happening in your organization or your department or your direct reports, whatever, you know, unit of the organization we're talking about here. And I think a lot of times, you know, guys will say, well, you know, sadness isn't really for me. I'm, I'm not going to go there. And it's true. Sadness is a, is a complicated emotion. It has an upside. It makes you more empathetic. It has a downside as it can really slow you down. I uh, can kind of numb you to things because you kind of do have this listlessness to you. So you get stigmatized, but there is some really valuable stuff in sadness. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's value in all of these emotions if we become aware yes. and understand, right? And and, yeah. and the, the value in it, I think, I'm going to just throw this out there, is it's what makes us human. Absolutely. Emotion is what makes us human. And, and to not recognize that highest level of value to me would be uh, it's a dissertation on robot, uh, being a robot, you know, and just not wanting to to emote. And I, I think I think sometimes with executives and with executive leaders, they feel that they're not supposed to show these emotions, that they're supposed to just have a very clear message and just state it without any real sense of humanity. And th- that's. I don't agree with that. No, I I don't either. I mean, I think they say, okay, I'll have a smile for the camera. I I will show some anger so that people know that I'm serious about this and want you to get something done. And otherwise, my comfort level is going to be I'm not going to show any emotion at all. But I can tell you, I I stopped doing it because it was too distressing regarding human nature. But for a while, I was on some of the crime shows where they would have me look at psychopaths. And and psychopaths don't show emotion or they show the wrong emotion. Like there was this Chicago cop who had been through three wives who all died in mysterious circumstances. And, you know, he either didn't show any emotion, which is really disturbing given the subject matter, or he'd like have a smile on his face at like the wrong moment. And I was just like, you know, come on, any woman, run, please, fast, away from him. So I, I do not agree with the idea that stoical is an emotional code that's going to make you a more effective leader. I just think that's old-fashioned and dead wrong. And the business world is still about people. It's not B2C or B2B. It's business to people. You have customers, you have colleagues, you got the general public, you got regulators. Everybody you're trying to connect with or persuade has feelings, and they're going to respond to you based on those feelings. Yeah. So... Dan, tell me a little bit about this uh, new book that you're working on, The Devil's Dictionary of Work, Life, and Commerce. What's uh, what's that about? I don't I don't see a, an emotional word in there, except the word devil kind of throws me off a bit. So talk to me. Well, what actually happened is I do a podcast called Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. And two weeks in a row, I happen to have on guests who mentioned almost in passing that the estimation is about 25% of all bosses are bullies. Mm-hmm. Well, between my PhD and starting my own company, I had five bosses, two of whom were bullies. So I was a little bit higher than the average. I was at 40%. But one morning, I woke up about 4.30 in the morning. I said, I've got to write a new devil's dictionary because a lot of people won't know this, but a guy named Ambrose Bierce was a contemporary of Mark Twain. He wrote some great short stories, but he also wrote this devil's dictionary, which is considered one of the 100 greatest pieces of American literature. And it's full of all sorts of diabolical definitions like bore, someone who talks when you want him to listen, or acquaintance, someone you know well enough to ask for a loan from, but not well enough to give a loan to, and so forth. And we all know that there are buzzwords, cliches, jargon. There's such a sea of non-communication that goes on in business. 
verbally and non-verbally alike. And I just woke up and I said, I got to do this. This is just a ripe plum waiting to be seized on. And satire can be a vehicle for correcting wrongs. And I think one of the wrongs in the workplace is we have far too many disengaged workers, workers who feel emotionally abused by managers, bosses, supervisors, executives who don't have EQ skills. And I do not know for the world of me why HR departments and executives don't intervene to get some of these bad managers out of there, because obviously emotions and productivity are going to be interrelated. And if you care about the bottom line, you should be caring about emotions. So that's yeah. what that's what drove me to start the book. And I ended up now I've crowdsourced it with about 63 contributors because I can't sit here as an aging white guy and assume I know everybody's experience in life. So I definitely was reaching out for a diversity of viewpoints and definitions uh, to have some fun with the book. That's great. That uh, sounds like it's, uh, it's not only just a fun book, but it's also going to add some real meat to uh, this topic of understanding about bullies in, in the workplace. And I will tell you those 25% of the bullies get around because there's another statistic that I've come across recently that 71% of all employees have had an intolerable boss. So if you've got 25% that are bullies or bullying, then they're affecting a lot of people because 71% are, are coming across that boss because they're around so long. <laughs> And I've seen some statistics around 70% for people who feel that every single week they have at least one memorable, distressing interaction with a boss or colleague. I mean, that's a lot of emotional wounds to stumble through week after week after week. Because one of my beliefs is the longer you're interacting with a boss, you start out with, these are the rational game plan. This are our goals, our bullet points, our objectives. But over time, the emotional elements of that relationship with a boss really build up like plaque on your teeth and it makes it harder to to chew and bite off those assignments you're supposed to go after and yet we don't recognize them. we don't deal with them i mean they rarely come up in the you know annual review they rarely come up at all we're just we're afraid of dealing with them they're the third rail in business but a lot of people get inadvertently electrocuted along the way well they do and the, and the electrocution causes them to quit and yeah, yeah. What, what people don't realize is that there's two types of quit you know, people quit and go, but it's the ones that quit and stay that really hurt the organization. Yeah. And over 80% of the people that do quit, quit because of the boss. So the turnover is there. When I go in and work with the organization, one of the things that I look at is departmental level turnover. And if I see a department or two that has a high level of turnover, I'm going to dig into finding what that is. I'm going to interview that boss and find out and interview the followers, the direct reports to find out, is it just tough work? Is it just not fun work? What is it? What's going on? Or is it the boss who is driving people away? It's a real problem. And But on the, on the plus side, Dan, my whole mission in life is to get rid of bad bosses. So if somebody else does it, I'm, I won't have a job. So I'm, I'm on oh. board. So. <laughs> My, my very first boss was wonderful, but my third boss was so bad that we had this really sweet secretary. I mean, she's just the nicest woman. And she kind of like motions me over one day. She says, have you heard the latest joke about the new boss? And I said, no. And she said, this is why Linda is going on vacation, so she can write a new introduction to Mein Kampf. Oh, no. That, that's how bad it was. I left and there was, I believe, seven or eight lawsuits against the company for emotional cruelty wow. based on this new boss. She, she was, she was horrific beyond belief. Yeah. So Dan, in, in wrapping this thing up, this is, this is fascinating. We could talk about this stuff for hours. I love, I love this stuff. 
I'd like to ask you what I ask a lot of my podcast guests. And that is if you could write yourself a letter and send it back to Dan 25 years ago and give <laughs> yourself a little bit of advice on something that you ought to do, you could do, or you would like to see yourself do as a leader, what would that letter say? Uh, the very first thing would be to talk to your parents, particularly your mother, because I think the mother is more likely to meet you emotionally. After I went through a divorce at one point, and not long before I started my company, it's part of why I went on this journey toward emotions. And you know, if you sit down with a psychologist, they are very rightly, very quickly say to you, so tell me about your home life. Yes, you can tell me about work last week and your last date you went on and so on, but let's dial it all the way back to your childhood. And that's really the meat of things. I've recommended to people when they're hiring, the question they should ask people is, how would your mother describe you? Because that's not a question they expect. Mm. And it's going to get to something that's really a deep, longstanding relationship. So I, I think, yeah, if I was to look back, I had that conversation with my mother, learned a lot of things about my parents' early married life that I think, you know, taught me some things, some insights. And I had that conversation when I was 38 years old. If I'd had that conversation at 24, oh my God, that would have, that really would have uh, made a difference. Would have changed your life, huh? I think yeah. it would have. Well, so at 24, what would your mother have said to you? You're the one that brought the question up. So I kept asking you. <laughs> I, I think she would say that I'm crazy busy, that, yeah. I, that I love to charge ahead to things. Mm. And I think it actually comes out of a nervous energy. I noticed the same thing in my mom's dad. And only later in life did I learn that he was born illegitimate. He actually had a scar on his neck where his stepfather tried to strangle him. And wow. then kind of backed off on it. But I always noticed that my grandfather had this nervous energy. He always had to like prove his worth, be mm. out there and be active. And he was way different than his siblings. And in my case, what I learned is that, you know, my mother really, my parents were in that silent generation that married young. My mom didn't really want to drop out of college and have a child and start a family. She wanted to face her schooling. So there was a lot of angst and ambivalence about that. And she told me a story. We're on the train from Minneapolis back to their hometown, Minot, North Dakota. She handed me off on the train to anyone who wanted to hold her her baby. She was that eager not to be a mother. Wow. So I think that this frenetic energy that I have, that everybody has noted, that I have in common with my you know, grandfather is that I feel illegitimate in some ways. My mom did not want me. And just like that stepfather did not want my grandfather, and it had a implication. But you miss that, you know, there are things you grab and, and enjoy in life because you move forward. But if you move at such a pace, it also means that you blow right past some things and some conversations and some downtimes and quiet moments. So it's not always the best thing for your relationships, even if it's a good thing for your career. And I value both things. Yeah. If we're not in the moment, we're going to miss some of the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's why I think that conversation at 24, yeah. it's not that I haven't had a good life, but I think I could have had a better life <laughs> had I known that a bit earlier and been able to work with it. Yeah. That's great. So I think that's what we're going to call this podcast. I really like that. It's to talk to your mother. We shall listen to that wisdom. And it's a different perspective for many of us that would really help us. And my mother turns 92 here in a couple of weeks. Let me just throw that out there. That uh, November 11th, Veterans Day, uh, my mother turns 92 and pretty excited about that, that she's still around. And she had five boys and those five boys, a grandson and her, and her husband served the United States military 108 years. 
Wow. And she was born on Veterans Day. That's pretty cool stuff. Dan, I want to thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate your your time and your wisdom about this whole topic of, of emotional intelligence, emotional reading, emotional listening, and uh, how important it is to uh, be in touch with our own emotions, but also to be able to read the emotions of others as we're having conversations. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Oh, I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks, Dan. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks again for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care and be well. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit petercats.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>